Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Red Lines. My guest today is CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou, who recently sought a pardon from the Trump administration on charges he violated the Intelligence Identities Protection Act. Kiriakou is the only individual who ever served time for charges related to the U.S. waterboarding program, but that was for revealing its existence rather than participating in it. John, welcome to Red Lines. Thanks for having me, Anya. Let's get right into it. The New York Times recently reported that, quote, a one-time top advisor to the Trump campaign was paid $50,000 to help seek a pardon for John Kiriakou, a former CIA officer convicted of illegally disclosing classified information. And Mr. Kiriakou was separately told that Mr. Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, would help him secure a pardon for $2 million. Kiriakou rejected the offer, but an associate fearing that Mr. Giuliani was illegally selling pardons alerted the FBI. Giuliani denies these characterizations, of course. But, John, is the Times reporting here true? Uh, I hate to say that it is true. Yes, uh, all of it's true. And, you know, to his credit, Mike uh, Schmidt, the primary author of that report, interviewed more than 30 people uh, for the article. It wasn't just, you know, John decided to take a to take a cheap shot at Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he interviewed a lot of people for that article. And so that means there were at least two Trump allies attempting to sell pardons just based on your story alone. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, they made a, um, they made a differentiation between selling pardons and lobbying for pardons. Clearly this was pay for play. Uh, and boy, you know, where do you even start with this story? You know what, Anya, I'll start at the beginning. Uh, I have an attorney who has been helping me try to get a pardon for many years. He didn't really have very good contacts in the Trump administration. I had no contacts in the Trump administration. And so we decided to hire a woman by the name of Karen Giorno, who uh, ran the Trump campaign in Florida in 2016. She is a, uh, you know, she doesn't like to call herself a lobbyist, but she's a political strategist for what that's worth. And so we met with her at my attorney's office here in Washington in 2018. And she told me that she was very close to the president. She showed me the president's personal cell phone number that she had saved in her phone. At least that's what she said it was. She claimed that the president called her uh, in the middle of the night uh, on a regular basis to talk about policy and politics and that she was still very close to him. And for $50,000, she would lobby the White House on my behalf. And if I got a pardon, she would want another $50,000. Uh, I borrowed the 50000 I didn't have it, so I borrowed it. I gave it to her and then essentially never heard from her again. And so every four or five, six months, I would call and I'd say, hey, I haven't heard from you in four or five or six months. What's up? And she would tell me the same story. Oh, uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway is, is uh, on your side and she's aware of your story. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders is, a, is on your side and aware of your story. And I talked to the White House political director and he's uh, on your side. It got to the point where I said to her, 
one time, I called her and I said, so help me God, if you tell me one more time that you spoke to the White House political director, I'm going to flip out because I don't even know who the White House political director is, but whoever he is, he clearly does not have regular access to the president. I said, damn it, Karen, I want you to go to the president and ask him to pardon me. And if you can't go to him, I want you to go to Kushner because she had been bragging about her access to Jared Kushner. Well, she didn't know Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner wouldn't know her if he had, if she had walked up to him on the street. And, uh, you know, when push came to shove, she didn't help me get a pardon. Now, I knew that this was happening, and I knew that time was growing short. So last summer, on the 1st of July, uh, two business associates of mine and I had a meeting with Rudy Giuliani and an assistant of his or an associate of his at the Trump Hotel here in Washington. This was to sell a very large number of uh, KN95 masks to the Pentagon. And so during a lull in the conversation, I said to Rudy, hey, you know, why don't we talk about uh, a pardon? And as soon as I said the word pardon, he stood up and said, I have to hit the head. And he walked away to the bathroom. His associate said to me, um, Rudy doesn't talk about pardons. You want to talk about a pardon? You talk to me but Rudy's going to want $2 million. And I, I laughed at him. I actually laughed at his face. And I said, $2 million. I said, listen, first of all, I don't have $2 million. Secondly, why in the world would I spend $2 million to recover a $700,000 pension? I said, that's outrageous. And I ended the conversation. Now I related this to Karen Giorno. And she told me, oh, well, you know, that's the going rate. I gave you a deal. Dinesh D'Souza paid a million for his and Conrad Black paid a million for his. And she just went on and on. Well, I related this story later on to a friend of mine, another whistleblower, um, Robert McLean, the TSA whistleblower. And he said to me, you know, this sounds like pardons are for sale. And I said, that's a crude way of saying it, but but yeah, I think that's really what is going on here. They they call it lobbying, uh, but it's not really lobbying. I think pardons are for sale, and even if Donald Trump isn't, you know, getting the money at the end of the day, it's people like Rudy Giuliani enriching themselves. That's really what this comes down to. Even even if people don't have the connections to actually follow through, as as was yeah. the case with Miss Giorno. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. It was a money grab is what it was, whether it was Karen Giorno or any of the other, you know, dozen people purporting to have had close contacts with the White House or close enough contacts with the White House to to get a pardon. Yeah, that's what it was. It was a money grab. So I mentioned this to Robert McLean. He was appalled to his credit. And um, and he called the FBI and he reported it. He reported it that Rudy Giuliani was essentially selling pardons. And the FBI was not interested. And Robert was so disappointed that the FBI didn't care that this was happening, that he called the New York Times. And that's how they got started on this story. And then, as you say, spoke with dozens, around 30 sources in order to corroborate uh, this, this yeah. dealing regarding the pardons, John, is, is this kind of corrupt management of the pardon process unique to the oh. Trump administration? 
No, this happened during the Clinton administration as well, although it wasn't the lobbyists and, and lawyers who were making the money. It's uh, They were passing the money on in the form of donations to the Clinton Foundation. So this isn't specifically a partisan thing. It's not specifically a Trump thing. Um, it, it's, it just points to the corruption of the entire system. And, and let me add something about that that I think is very important. The system that we have that allows convicted felons to apply for pardons is utterly broken, right? The way it's supposed to work is you go online to the website of the office of the U.S. pardon attorney and you fill out a form and you say, I'm rehabilitated, I'm sorry for my crime, and I'm on the straight and narrow, and this is what I'm doing with my life. And then they turn all that, all of that over to the FBI. The FBI does a background investigation. And then when the FBI is done with their investigation, they pass the file back to the pardon attorney, and the pardon attorney determines if yes, you deserve a pardon, or no, you do not deserve a pardon. So in a perfect world, that's how it's supposed to work. The way it really works is 10,000 people apply for a pardon every year, and they recommend five or six people. So you mean out of 10,000 people, only five or six have really rehabilitated themselves? And so at the end of the day, nobody gets a pardon. Well, if nobody gets a pardon, and if everybody knows that the that the formal process doesn't work, then what are they going to do? Well, if you're poor, you're not going to do anything because you're out of luck. If you have money or you have friends in high political places, then you go the lobbyist route. And that just shows you how perverted this entire system has become. Yeah. How are you now advocating for reform of the pardon system based on your experience? Well, you know, I've always maintained that the that the original authorizing legislation uh, back in, you know, the the early 19th century that authorized the creation of the office of the U.S. pardon attorney meant or intended for the pardon attorney to be independent of the attorney general. Um, we know that from contemporaneous uh, accounts of the debate around the legislation. But it's never been independent. It's always been seconded to the office of the attorney general, and that's just wrong. So instead of the pardon attorney being housed at DOJ, it should be housed at the White House. It should not report to the uh, attorney general. It should report to the executive office of the president. And they should be able to make their own um, determinations as to who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't deserve forgiveness, absent uh, political pressures. Because as things stand now, almost nobody apparently deserves uh, a pardon. You know, at the very end of the Obama administration, uh, Obama fired the pardon attorney for that very reason, because the pardon attorney would go years at a time without recommending anybody for a pardon. And that just defeats the whole purpose of the office. Absolutely. While I've got you on the line, I wanted to ask you about some of the intelligence priorities of the new Biden administration. On January 20th, 
Averill Haynes became the first Biden pick to be approved by the Senate. She will serve as Biden's director of national intelligence. And we've been hearing a lot about her role in the CIA's drone program, as well as whitewashing U.S. torture. How will she influence President Biden? Yeah, that's a very important question and a very important issue. Averill Haynes is very, very much in the mold of John Brennan and Gina Haspel. Uh, she was she was Brennan's deputy at the National Security Council. She was Brennan's deputy at the CIA. Uh, and remember, Avril Haines, who was confirmed by the Senate yesterday by a vote of 82 to 10, which just made my hair stand up. Um, Avril Haines was the one who who was responsible for creating the legal arguments in support of John Brennan's kill list at the uh, NSC. It's Avril who would take, you know, the call from from the field saying we have the terrorists uh, Jeep in in our sites request permission to launch. And she would give permission to launch. And invariably, we killed innocent uh, civilians, women, children, elderly. Uh, and she never answered questions, at least not in my mind. She never answered questions related to her role in the drone program, at least as important as that. It was Avril Haines, who was John Brennan's deputy at the CIA, when Brennan ordered CIA operatives to hack into the computer system of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Democratic staff, because they were writing the Senate torture report, and Brennan wanted to know what they knew, and so he ordered this hack of the system. Well, Avril Haines was in up to her neck in the hacking of the system. So that's two little things, I mean, little in terms of, you know, global politics that bother me. Another thing that bother me is we really don't know where Avril Haines stands on issues like China, Russia, Iran, counterproliferation, counterterrorism. She never had to answer any of those questions, at least not in a public venue. Yet she was she was approved by a vote of 82 to 10 and is today the director of national intelligence. For some reason, many of these intelligence picks or questions seem to have bipartisan support, John. What do you make of Biden's decision to nominate William Burns, a career diplomat, to lead the CIA? Now that I was very happy about. I've known Bill Burns for the last 30 years. Uh, he has ably uh, uh, served presidents of both parties. Uh, he was he was the point man for the Obama administration during the negotiations with Iran for the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. He devoted his professional career to supporting human rights and the Arab-Israeli peace process. Uh, he's the real deal, and he is apolitical to a fault. There's not a political bone in the man's body. He's had essentially every high-level position at the State Department from uh, deputy secretary on down. He was ambassador to uh, Russia. He was ambassador to Jordan. He was the special uh, peace envoy. So if you're looking for someone who's not afflicted with the stink of torture or Guantanamo or secret prisons uh, around the world, uh, he's your guy. If, if you're looking for somebody with the, the political juice in the bureaucracy 
to actually reform the CIA if that's what you want to do. And I, I think it's in dire need of reform. Then Bill Burns is the guy to do it. And it, what was a mystery to me, uh, Anya, is that um, is that Joe Biden could pick somebody as able as Bill Burns and somebody as disastrous as Avril Haines in the same week. I just don't understand it. Suggests a bit of schizophrenia within the administration, perhaps. Some have said that the selection of Burns, and you alluded to this, suggests that negotiating with Iran, restarting talks with Iran will be a major priority of the Biden administration. Along with friend of the show, Gareth Porter, you actually wrote a book, The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis. From your perspective, why is the United States so fixated on branding Iran as a top enemy, and how will the Biden administration approach the country? Yeah, that's a great question. Historically, the problem that we had vis-a-vis -vis Iran was the specter of communism, as quaint as that may sound now. The CIA and the State Department were absolutely obsessed with the notion that Iran could go communist. And of course, you know, in typical uh, American fashion, we overreacted by installing brutal dictators like the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, and his father, uh, Reza Pahlavi, in order to crush whatever left-wing dissent there might be in the, in the country. Well, of course, they went overboard, as dictators are wont to do, and they ended up oppressing their own people and killing many thousands of people. That led to the Iranian Revolution of 1978 and 79. Um, we've never gotten over the Iran hostage crisis, like as a, as a country, as a government, we've just never gotten over it. And we don't trust the Iranians because of it. Well, the Iranians don't trust us because of our interference in their country spanning so many decades. At the same time, Anya, we always seem to need an ism to, to oppose, whether it's communism anarchism, socialism, as the decades roll by, um, Islamic fundamentalism. It's like we, we seek an ideology to rally against uh, because it helps us politically. And I think that's, that's the rut that we've been in with Iran. The, the JCPOA, the, the successful negotiation for the JCPOA was a giant leap forward in American diplomacy. The shame of it is twofold. One, that it came so late in the Obama administration. And two, that it was not ratified as a treaty by the U.S. Senate. So it could just be canceled uh, by Donald Trump as it was. Well, now Joe Biden wants to uh, reinvigorate, uh, reestablish the JCPOA. And the Iranians are reluctant. And I think deservedly so, because their view is... That's fine. You know, we we agree to go back into the JCPOA. And then what? What's to keep you from pulling out of it again, imposing crippling sanctions on us again? You know, don't forget these sanctions. These aren't just paragraphs in the official Gazette. These sanctions have real impact. People die because of sanctions, whether they can't get food or medications or fuel or spare parts people die. There's a squeeze and it's not just on the government. It's on the, 
the citizenry. And so the Iranians just simply don't trust us. Especially now we're hearing that the Biden administration, according to Secretary of State nominee Anthony Blinken, won't necessarily return to negotiations without asking for even more from Iran, even though it was the United States which broke the deal to begin with. So, you know, uh, Tony Blinken's another person that I've known for a long time. I actually took his desk uh, when I went up to the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he he left the Senate Foreign Relations Committee the week that I arrived, and Tony very much is a is a creature of Washington. He owes his entire career to Joe Biden. He has spent his entire career as an aide to Joe Biden in different capacities. He was uh, a staff assistant uh, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then he worked his way up to be the staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Biden became its chairman. He followed Biden to the White House uh, 12 years ago and became the deputy national security advisor, then the vice president's national security advisor, then deputy secretary of state. Uh, and he spent the four years working with Madeleine Albright and uh, and other heavy hitters from the Democratic Party's diplomatic uh, grouping of people. And uh, now he finds himself secretary of state and he owes it all to Joe Biden. And finally, John, I just wanted to ask you, we know according to U.S. defense documents that since early 2018, the U.S. has placed a great power competition concerning Russia and China at the center of its strategy. Why are our military and intelligence agencies so focused on this fight and how might it manifest under Biden and his cabinet? This is a dangerous uh, policy development, I think. Instead of, of engaging Russia and China, instead of trying to um, to try to figure out where, for example, in intelligence we can cooperate with them, for example, on counterterrorism, counterproliferation, counter-narcotics, uh, we, we challenge them and we just make a, a policy assumption that, that we're on the verge of a hot war and so we have to prepare for that hot war. This is a policy decision that was made many, many years ago. Uh, it's bipartisan in nature, and uh, and we're in the minority in that people like you and I want to see cooperation and negotiations. Uh, but I don't think it matters really who is in the White House. I don't think it matters who the Secretary of Defense is, who the National Security Advisor is, or who the Secretary of State is. We're going to be challenging Russia and China uh, in perpetuity. That's That's the lobbying that we see done on the part of the defense contractors. That's the, the uh, you know, what else can you say? Eisenhower warned us about the, the, um, the military industrial complex, and he was exactly right. Here we are now three generations later, and we're still having the same conversation. Nothing's going to change. And I don't care how liberal people want to believe Joe Biden is. Uh, our relations with Russia and China won't change. During Blinken's Senate confirmation hearings, a, a major theme was especially China. And even from someone such as Blinken, who's not considered as hawkish as some of the other individuals Biden may have chosen for that position, sure. the, the major threat 
Blinken saw, as well as most of the senators on the Foreign Relations Committee, was that China is going to replace us as the number one power in the world. And I think that will just be a huge theme uh, throughout the Biden presidency. I agree. The Chinese will replace us as the largest economy uh, in the next 10 years. Uh, but I, I agree with you. Uh, Tony Blinken is a neoliberal, just like just like you know Hillary Clinton was when she was the Secretary of State. And don't forget that it was Barack Obama who talked about the pivot to Asia, uh, turning away from Russia as our as our greatest threat, and uh, and looking at the Chinese as our greatest threat. That was a democratic strategy, and uh, I think that strategy is uh, is still in in play uh, during a, a Biden administration. It certainly will be. John Kiriakou, CIA whistleblower, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. You know, we were really, I was really rooting for your pardon. Uh, thank and you. I'm sorry that, about how it all worked out, but I appreciate you sharing this story and discussing some of the issues with this system now, just as you did after your time in prison. I know you you talked a lot about the experience of prisoners after, after yeah. you served. You have to keep so. up the fight. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Anya. Take care.